Well, we're nearing the end of our series in the book of Romans, and over the last few weeks, we're looking at various passages from chapters 15 and 16 of Romans. This morning, we find ourselves near the very end in Romans chapter 16, so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to that passage. It's going to be found on page 923 in the hardcover Bibles that we provide. And as you look at Romans chapter 16 as a collective whole, What Paul is doing is he's taking some time at the very end to greet the various people within the church. He's got some people people he's talking to specifically, groups of people that he's talking to collectively, but he's greeting each one of them with encouragements and love, reminding them of various things specific to their task. But he comes to verse 17 and he shifts. He was going through greetings. Now he comes back to a form of teaching. And really he shifts back into a warning for the church in Rome. And here's what he says in verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul comes to a very specific warning for the church. And at first glance, it comes out of the blue just a little bit after these greetings, but verse 16 really is the hinge and the focus that Paul is trying to get at. In verse 16, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. The holy kiss in their context was really a call to unity. Paul has just reminded them that whenever you get together, greet one another with a holy kiss. Foreign to our context, we usually do the shake of the hand or a formal greeting of some sort, but in their context, it was a holy kiss that signified unity. He's saying, not only am I reminding all of you as a church that you are to be unified with one another through that symbolic event, but also all of the other churches in the known world that are following Christ are unified with you. So it's as if Paul gets to the end of those greetings and his mind shifts to the fact that unity is the focus. But there's a danger lurking, working against that unity. So he decides to take one last warning, one last encouragement to the church to remind them of the importance of unity. And that's where he says this in verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. As Paul's thinking about the Roman church, the, the problem of, of divisions and obstacles and all of that is not as foreign to the church as he would wish. It's actually apparent perhaps right in their midst. In fact, back in chapter 3, he said this in verse 8. Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Well, their condemnation is just. So Paul knows that within the church of Rome, there are people who are slanderously shifting his words. And so there are people right in their midst that he says we have to be careful for. Now, these could be the formal false teachers in their midst, the ones standing before them, communicating the truths and nuancing it in such a way that's slandering the words. That's very likely and possible. But I think it goes beyond that for Paul. Paul just broadly says, watch out for those who... He doesn't specifically define them, 
I think because he's concerned they could be the everyday people that the Romans come in contact with in their social contexts of life. They would be the people within the groups that they normally walk with that all of a sudden start to instigate these divisions, these obstacles in their way. For you and I here at Calvary Church, it will be the people potentially in our normal Saturday morning coffee group. It might be the people that are serving within the ministry context here in our church. It might actually be an over-vocal voice in your very small group that Paul is concerned about. And he says, watch out for those who, every category. Now, he uses this really significant word, watch out for. It's not just a casual gaze. He's using a very focused word that talks about an intense examination, a scrutinizing look at what is happening. And Paul is saying, I want you to put a scrutinizing look on these people. It's so intense, it's actually the word in the Greek that we get our English word scope. And so Paul is saying, if you see false teachers out there, and they're out there, they'll be on the religious cable network. You'll see teachers on normal, formal context within our church. He says, put a telescope on those people out there to make sure you scrutinize what they're saying. But within the social constructs of your life, the people that you interact with on a daily basis... Put a microscope on those people so that the problems that exist in this passage can't get into and permeate the church as a whole. Now, the reason Paul wants to put a scrutinizing look on these people is because of the three problems that they would bring into the church. And those are articulated there in verse 17. The first one is divisions. Number two is they put obstacles in your way. And the third they're doing this in a way that advocates something that is contrary to the teaching you have learned. So the first one is divisions. Be very leery of divisive people in your midst. Now, these are the people that are going to try to sow seeds of doubt in your minds about things. They're going to sow aspects of discontentment with the way things are that are around them. And they're even going to try to create a distrust between you and someone else or your group and this group over here. Paul's saying be very leery of these people because God takes that very seriously. In fact, a simple survey of the Old Testament reminds us just how badly it went for people who caused divisions. I mean, these were the stories where a divisive person had the entire earth open up and a chasm swallowed him in and his entire family and God closed the earth over that person. I mean, these are the people that had the fire from heaven come down and consume them or the plague of snakes come into their midst to destroy them and devour them. Jesus and God takes divisiveness very seriously, and so, so does Paul in this passage. And he says, put a scrutinizing look on these people. Now, if divisiveness is moving your way of thinking in an opposite direction of someone else, the next word, obstacles, leans more toward the activity or a sinful action that will get in the way of your walk with someone. In fact, he says here, not just look out for divisions, but number two, those who put obstacles in your way. Obstacles in your way. These are really the sinful activities or actions that would happen within a church that get in the way of people's normal course of their walk with the Lord. The Greek word here is skandalon. You can guess what English word we get out of that, right? Have you ever heard somebody say, did you hear about that scandal over at the other church? 
Your thinking doesn't usually go to false teaching or nuanced ideas. It actually goes to a a sinful event. You think you're going to hear about an embezzlement that funneled thousands of dollars out of the general fund of the church. Or you think you're going to hear about an affair that rocked the fabric of the staff at that church. Because that's what a scandal is. A scandal, an obstacle, is something that is a sinful event that creates such a burden in the lives of the people of the church that it pulls them away from their relationship with the Lord. And so if divisiveness is about somebody pulling you in their way of thinking, an obstacle is that sinful activity or event that will cause people to lose and become disillusioned in their relationship with the Lord. And Paul is saying when those two things are present in the life of a church, they quickly fall into the third major problem. And the third major problem is that these things cause you to go contrary to the teaching you have learned. What do these do? These corrupt the very truth of the gospel in your midst. When there are divisions and scandals, these people are going to cause the church itself to move in a direction away from the gospel. What these do is they cause people to to run counter to what they've always known and always learned. They see this divisiveness and they go, boy, this just, this this is confusing me about what it means to live a holy life. It's confusing me about righteousness and and my, 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 my faith is being shaken because of these things. And what's moving forward is a shift from the normal true standard of the gospel and people are moving to a different gospel. Paul says this is a huge problem because now what's at stake? The eternal state of souls. If a church starts to get the gospel wrong, then people are lost for eternity. And he's saying it will happen because of divisiveness and sinful obstacles that are getting in the way. In fact, this wasn't a problem only in the church in Rome. Paul had to very specifically engage the church in Galatia with this same issue. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, i.e. divisions and obstacles, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We have to get the word of God right. It is the litmus test to discerning if somebody is actually moving in a good direction and they're reframing things or they're being divisive and putting obstacles in the way. When you and I go back to the word and that becomes our focus, we're then able to scrutinize what someone else is doing and not fall prey to these three problems that are out there and in the midst. In fact, Paul says, I don't want you just to scrutinize them. How did he end verse 17? He ended verse 17 with, Keep away from them. We need to keep away from people like this. When someone is being overly vocal about their situation or their their context, when you disengage from them, you eliminate their voice. When they no longer have an audience, their voice tends to fade. 
And what Paul is asking us to do is disassociate, keep away from those who are causing obvious divisiveness within the church. But this is easier said than done. I mean, these are close friends of yours. I mean, these are people that we interact with on a regular basis. And what can happen is we can be pulled into what they are doing because not only are they doing three problematic things in the church, but they have three very effective strategies that Paul talks about. And these come at the end of verse 18. He says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Those are actually three effective strategies. You've got smooth talk, you have flattery, and you have deception. So here's how it would work. You're in a normal conversation with someone within the midst, and they start articulating something they are very discontent with about their context. And they're using very clear thinking, and they are actually putting together a pretty good argument and a good case. There's some smooth talk going on. They, they really, it, it sounds good. And what they like to do in the process is bolster you in the midst of that. They start telling you how good you are, how excellent you are. And before you know it, because you're feeling good about yourself, you're pulled into the third strategy, which is the deception that is taking place. And so you're in the context of a group and someone is saying, man, there's a travesty going on here at this church and we need to do something about it. And they look at you and they say, because of your business acumen, because of the leadership you have in this community, you should be the person to do something about this. You've heard their line of thinking and you go, wow, there might indeed be something wrong with this place and I just might be the person to do something about it. You've just been pulled in to their deception because they were so effective in what they did. So how do we avoid being the naive people that get pulled into the divisiveness, the scandals, and the deceptions of the church? And how do we keep ourselves from being the very people that do that type of thing here at Calvary? Well, the crux comes in verse 18, and this becomes the core focus of the passage for Paul. He says the reason these things come into play in the church is because of two motivational choices to one's life. Verse 18 says this, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but they are serving their own appetites. Such people are not serving their Lord Christ, but are instead serving their own appetites. The motivation behind everything that we do must be a service to Christ. Not a service to the church, not a service to the kingdom around us, not a service to ourselves, but a service to Christ. And Paul uses the weightiest word in the Greek language for serving here. He uses the Greek word doulos. Doulos carries with it such deep connotation of service that it's actually technically translated bondservant or even slave. This is the very word that Paul used of himself in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant, a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our American context, we have cringed a little bit at the idea of translating this as slave. And in all fairness, in this passage, it's the verbal form. So we really did need the word serving to be able to get the, the English to work right in this passage. But it carries with it the depth that doulos brings. And a doulos is really a slave to their master. 
Now, there were a number of English or Greek words that Paul could have used in his context. There's a handful of them for serving. And in fact, Pastor Jim looked at one of those two weeks ago when we looked at the life of Phoebe in chapter 16, verse 1. Phoebe was a diakonos of the church. She was a servant, but the word there was diakonos. Diakonos really has at the heart of it the idea that the act of service itself is the focus. A diakonos has a task, an activity that they're supposed to do, and they're supposed to carry that out faithfully. And the focus becomes that activity, that, that service that the person is providing. It may even be a call to an office within the church, but it's this idea that there's a position, there's an activity that is to be done, all tied into the service that is faithfully to be done. But when the word doulos is used... It ties in those ideas about serving, but it's deeper than that. It's more in line with the focus on the relationship to the master. A doulos is not their own. A doulos is not free. A doulos is someone who is tied tightly in to the service to their master. And the whole focus becomes not the activity, not the service that I'm doing, but my relationship to my master. And when we get that right, we sense the depth of what Paul is saying. He's saying you need to be so tied into Jesus Christ that he is your master in every way, the complete Lord of your life, so that everything you do is filtered and funneled through serving him. We, however, if we're honest, we like the word servant just a little bit better. Because for us, the word servant carries connotations that are lighter, a little more freer. We get to choose what service we're going to do based on our desires, maybe our strengths, Based on our time flexibilities with our commitment, you know, yeah, I'll serve you as, as I see fit. I want it to fulfill me, and so this will be a great act of service. A doulos does not look at it that way. A doulos is bound to the will of the master, doing only what the doulos wants, the master wants. The other reason we cringe at this is because whenever we think of slavery, we think of cruel oppression and evil dehumanization. That was our experience in America. Slavery was cruel, oppressive, and dehumanizing in every way. The ancient world was not foreign to that either. Paul understood that. Slaves in the ancient world were oppressed and dehumanized. But the concept of oppression is not innate in the definition of slavery. What is, is the relationship to the master. And if the master is good and loving... That bond of slavery to that master is actually going to be the most life-giving, fulfilling experience someone can have. In fact, if you get a moment later this afternoon, go to Exodus chapter 21. There's this unique passage where a whole group of slaves were given their freedom. It says, it's the year of Jubilee. Go, you are free. And in Exodus 21, these slaves said, we so love our master that we are committing ourselves to be that master's slaves for the rest of our lives. And then there was actually a formal covenantal ceremony that took place where they pierced their ear into the doorframe to say, I am tied to my master for the rest of my life. Why? Because their master was good. And serving that master as a doulos brought everything they could ever imagine or need in this life. And that, to them, was the greatest fulfillment. When we downplay that bond and we lighten the concept of what it means to be a doulos, well, it's not so much a slave, that I don't have freedoms and I'm bound into... What we're doing is 
we're lowering the standard of what it means for Jesus to be our master. But when you and I elevate what it means to be a slave bound to the mercies of my master, we're elevating the standard of what it means for Jesus to be the master of our lives. There was a woman in the Old Testament who understood this very clearly. Her name was Ruth. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, was about to leave, and Ruth was faced with a decision. And she said this to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth understood what it meant to be a doulos, and she tied herself intimately and tightly into Naomi so that wherever Naomi went, whatever Naomi needed, she was a doulos to her mother-in-law in every way. That's the concept that Paul is saying. We need to be willing to serve our Lord in all that he has. So I have an illustration for us this morning. This tool belt that I have up here, this tool belt signifies my service to the Lord. The concept is that I have been called to serve my Lord. And this tool belt is my willingness to belt on the activity of all the service that he wants me to do for him and for his kingdom. But this cable here, represents the nuance of what it means to be a doulos. What I'm doing as a servant of the Lord as a doulos is I am cabling myself to the very cross and my master. I'm acknowledging that I'm not free. It's not about me. It's not about what I want to do, the ways I think I should be used in God's kingdom. It's all about my master. And my focus becomes one in, in which I am so tightly tied into who he is that he becomes the focus. The service fades because whatever it is, I'm happy to do because my master is good. My eyes are fixed so tightly on him. I am attached so strongly to him that whatever my master says, that's what I want to do as a doulos. Now, it's verse 19 that articulates this a little bit. Verse 19 says, be wise toward what is good and be innocent of what is evil. What Paul is calling us to do is be wise toward everything in this direction. You have bound yourself into Christ, and so be wise of the things of him. Explore new ways of what it means to serve him with my whole heart. Learn more about your master, reading his word, catching a glimpse of his heart, finding ways in which you are wise about everything that is good and who your master is. And be innocent about what is evil. Keep all of that behind you. There are a number of parallels to this passage that we find in Romans that I'd like to throw up on the screen for us. These parallels are found, one of them in Matthew, the very words of Jesus, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Same thing, just a different metaphor. Romans 12 that we looked at earlier this summer, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And what Paul is saying is, as a doulos, serve Christ and be wise toward this, but leave everything else back there out of you, solely serving your Lord. But what happened to these people in the Roman church? They began to shift from serving Christ solely to letting their appetites come more into purview. So what happens to someone like this is they are faithfully serving the Lord, but they have some inner desires that are dwelling up. And they start to have these appetites that grow and you start to turn slightly and you're looking at those appetites. You're focusing in just a little bit more on those. You allow yourselves to shift. You still want to serve the Lord, 
But yeah, I want some fulfillment out of the process too. And your eyes start to shift and you start to focus in this direction. And what has happened now is you are moving in the direction away from solely focusing on Christ as your master and Lord. And you're slowly wandering this direction to a few of the appetites. What then happens to the cable that was holding you so closely to Christ? It starts to feel constricting. Now this is actually keeping me away from experiencing those things that, that certainly God would have for me. I mean, these are good things. I should be going in this direction. And you start to think about these things. These become your focus. Now you feel constricted. I love the one that we looked at in passages, be naive children. I feel like this is that teenage kid who's been grounded. All right, he's looking out the window, he's seeing all his friends enjoying the freedom of being out there, and he's stuck, grounded within the home to the oppressive rules and regulations of overbearing regulations in his life. And he wants to open up that room, that window to his bedroom, and walk out into the freedoms of everything that he desires. What happened to the people in the Roman church is they did just that. They subtly unhooked themselves from Jesus as their sole Lord and Master, and they started to follow their appetites. When I do that, and I hook myself up more to my appetites, who now becomes the Lord and the Master? I do. Now, what we're not talking about is salvation here. These people have not lost their salvation. They're not unhooking themselves from a walk with the Lord and their final state. But what they have done is they have made this subtle shift that in their service to the Lord, he no longer becomes the primary driver. And instead, they're focusing more on their own appetites, their own desires. What happens then? Well, you start to meander. You start to wander because you're not moored into anything solid anymore like you used to be. And you're caught up in every wind and whim of desire. And you start to drift. And before you know it, you've gotten yourself into a place where your desires have now started to lead the way. What are these appetites that we might find ourselves into? Well, they're the lust of the flesh. They're the desire for more power or more control. They're the climbing the ladder of significance. They're that greed for more of something. They're that hunger for the approval of others around them. So what has happened is these now become the driver. And you move subtly but thoroughly away from Jesus as the master of your life to a different master, namely the appetites. Take a look at what Paul had to say in Philippians chapter 3. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Look at this. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind has become set on earthly things. The Greek word for stomach is the same Greek word in our passage for appetites. I'm not saying that every one of our desires in and of itself is wrong. But what I am saying, when our desires become detached from Christ and they become our focus, they will inevitably become your God. And Paul says that is a dangerous place to be in when our appetites become our God. There was a wonderful author in the Christian context named Marva Dawn. 
and Marva has written great books on the church and on worship. And she got to a place where she realized that the royalties that she was receiving from writing were actually creating an unhealthy desire in her own heart. Look at what she wrote about these desires. One of the safeguards that is necessary for me is not to keep the royalties from the books I write. The royalties are channeled to ministries for the poor or for education. Not because I'm generous, but so that I don't fall into the trap of writing what sells. I need that sanctuary to protect myself from myself so that I write only what God gives me to write even if it doesn't sell. She needs to protect herself from herself. Our appetites can too quickly become our God. And if she says it very uniquely, Jeremiah says it very specifically. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And when I let my heart become the driver, it is going to move me in a different direction than from my master and savior. And what direction is that? There's only one direction that our heart unanchored from serving the Lord will move us in, and that is the direction of sin. When you and I have left allowing Jesus to be our sole master in our life, and we have drifted to letting ourselves kind of take the reins and be in charge for a while, our hearts will inevitably leave us, lead us into one direction, and that is towards sin. And the problem with sin is that once we enter into it and engage with it, it binds us as a new master. Look at what Paul warns about in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or as we should have been, to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And what Paul is saying is if you follow your appetites to their logical extent, they will always lead to death. And you will find that you will now be a doulos, but with a different master. You'll be a doulos to your sin. And if that master was the most loving and kind and benevolent master this universe has ever seen, this master is the cruelest master you will ever experience. The oppression, the death, the dehumanization that will become from longing and wafting into your sin will create a bondage that will destroy who you are. And when you thought you were moving into the freedoms of what you desire, we will find ourselves in bondage to that sin. When we find ourselves here, Matthew tells us very specifically what happens. In Matthew, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and whatever it is in this context. God was saying money in that case, but whatever it is that you make this master, you cannot serve God at the same time. You might think that as you are doing this, you're trying to win the day for this place. You're trying to be the savior of this place. You're trying to do all of this. And before you know it, you're caught up in your own deception. You think you're serving God, but you are serving your own interests, your own appetites. You're bringing divisiveness and obstacles in your path because you are bound to your sin. Some of you have faced the darkness of what that is. And you recognize that there was a day 
when you were serving your Lord and serving him alone. And you had such hope and love for life. But you're trying to figure out, how did I ever get here? And what happened was, is we slowly detached ourselves from Christ, following our appetites, and are now in bondage to sin. And if you are here this morning, and you are saying, is there any hope for me to free myself from this? What is it? And you know that you need help because you cannot unbind yourself from sin. This master is so strong that in and of ourselves, we have no strength to unbind ourselves on our own. If you are here and you are so broken and enslaved to your sin, verse 20 is the verse for you. It says, may the grace of our God be with you. Your father is so full of grace that he wants to come and unhook you from this sin and bondage that it is and in his strength take you back to serving him. Remember Romans 6 told us about this bondage to slavery. Look at how it goes on. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, You've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And you have been set free from sin and have become instead slaves to righteousness. So what the father wants to do is he wants in his heart to run to you in all of your bondage and come and free you from that sin. The enemy is going to tell you, no, 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 no. You have far too much sinned against that master. He will never want to have you back. You and your sin have so thoroughly disqualified yourself from ever serving him again that there is no way he wants you. Romans 6 gives us the very heart of God is that he will come in his grace and free you from the bondage of your sin. And what he does is he takes everything related to bondage and he throws it to the side and in his love, he brings you back into service to him. The reason I'm leaving all of that there is because of John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. He uses the Greek word doulos. He says, I no longer call you doulos, but I call you friends. Now this is very interesting because what he has done is he is saying, I am still bringing you back into service to me. We are still going to have a relationship together but part of the maturing understanding of this is that it is a friend that you are with me. Now, it does not, Jesus' statement cannot eliminate the concept of doulos. Because 30 years after Jesus said, I do not call you doulos, but I call you friends, 30 years later, Paul wrote Romans chapter 1. And what did he say? I am a doulos to my Lord. So there's a nuanced thing. I am at the same time a doulos and a friend to my Lord. And get this, the very last chapter of the entire book of the Bible, Revelation 22, talks about the eternal state. And it said, and the people of God will be with him, with him in, in reigning forever. And it says, my servants will serve me. He uses the word doulos. The very last statement about all of us is that we are going to be doulos, serving our Lord forever. But not in this bound, constrictive sort of way, but in this deep friendship. I have invited you into everything that I am, and you are with me in this. So you and I get the privilege of being the doulos of our Lord 
for all of eternity, but as friends of our God. That leads me in to the blessings of being a doulos. God says, if you serve me with your whole heart, I will fill you with my blessings. These blessings come from the fact that not only will we be friends with the Lord for all of eternity, not will we also be able to serve him, but he is actually going to elevate us beyond a state that we ever thought we could be in. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, I am going to, and he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He is going to, in the end, crush everything that this defines. Everything that bound you, that hindered you, the sin that's so easily entangled, even the enemy who's still not leaving you alone as you are back here faithfully serving the Lord, trying to pull you back in. God says, there is a day when I am going to crush the enemy. That is a great hope. But did you notice the pronoun he used about feet? He says, the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. I thought he was going to say under his feet, but he says, I am going to take you as my doulos, and in the end of the age, I'm going to so elevate you and lift you up that I am going to place you in victory over the defeated and crushed enemy, and your very foot is going to be the foot on his neck as you stand in triumph over the enemy at the end of the day. And we are only able to do this, not because we have powerful feet, but because our God does. And he will crush the enemy, and yet, out of his unfathomable blessing, elevate us to a status of triumph and victory at the end of the age. Not only is that a blessing, you and I also have the blessing of joy that this means. If you have truly served Jesus, you know the joy that comes from that. There is nothing more satisfying in this life than being so intimately tied to Jesus and what he is doing and serving him with your whole heart. So you will experience all the satisfaction and the joy that you needed. In fact, what's so ironic about this is that everything about the cross is antithetical to our own appetites. So we would look at the cross, and the cross stands for things like emptying ourselves, sacrifice, and suffering. Our appetites say, well, if we look at emptying, our appetite would say, well, if that's empty, I'd much rather be fulfilled. If the cross is asking me to sacrifice, I want to be satisfied. And if the cross is asking me to suffer, my appetites want to be comfortable. But when you and I actually engage in the emptying, the sacrifice, and the suffering of serving our master, that is when you will be most satisfied fulfilled, and in the safe comfort of the bonds of your Lord. So he's saying you're going you're to experience such deep joy as you do the very opposite thing that your appetites would pull you to. Thirdly, beyond that, not only will you experience joy, but everyone around you is going to experience joy just by looking at you. Look at what Paul says here at the end. He says this to them. He says in verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience so I rejoice because of you. As Paul looks at the Roman church and sees them faithfully serving their master, Paul says, you bring such joy to my heart. In reality, here at Calvary Church, your obedience is bringing so much joy to the hearts of the leadership. I mean, just a quick survey of this last year 
shows so many great ways in which God is using you for obedience in the life of this church. The way we shifted over to Calvin, and so many of you engaged in serving some for the first time in such a committed way, brought joy to every one of our hearts. The sacrificial giving that you have contributed to Grace Beyond and continued to give to the general fund and the benevolent fund brings such a delight to us here at Calvary. Some of you have been faithfully serving in an area of ministry of Calvary Church for years. Do you know who is most overjoyed by that? Your very ministry leader who needs you. They are so filled with joy by your faithful service and obedience. This candle has been lit nearly every week because of your faithful obedience to go out and share the good news of the gospel with others. And you in your service, even last week, as Jim preached on missions, the number of you that came forward to commit yourselves in some capacity to missions brings joy to our hearts. And so you as a church, your obedience is bringing such delight to those around you. And what Paul is saying is, let's stay there. And when we do, when we are so focused on that, all of the divisiveness, the sinful obstacles, the smooth talk, the corrupting of the gospel, the flattery, the deception, all of that will have no room here at Calvary because you are the faithful doulos of the Lord. And so as you go, may you experience all the blessings that that means to serve the Lord with your whole heart. And as you do, you will see the joy that it brings to you and ultimately to your God in heaven because you are bringing glory to him.